Uh, good morning to you all, and happy Lord's Day uh, to those of us joining, uh, to those of you joining in person, and to those joining online. Uh, my name is Philip Ta, and I'm one of the elders here. Also, happy Mother's Day for the mothers, the mother figures, and even the dear mothers we remember. Uh, we honor you, we love you, and uh, thank God for you. Hopefully, not just today, but all days. Uh, now, before we open up God's word. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we are gathered here as a people called by your name. With all that goes around us and all the noise around us, we need to hear the voice of our Lord. So Holy Spirit, would you renew our minds? Would you incline our ears? And would you make our hearts good soil as we open up your word? As a special note, Pray for abundant blessings upon the mothers and mother figures in our lives. Thank you for the life that you have given us through them. And thank you for their lives that they daily give to us and have given to us. Pray for abundant blessings upon them. I also pray as Pastor Nate and Anna travel for our wedding, I pray for safe and blessed travels. Now as we turn to your word, O oh Father, in my weakness, would you show yourself strong? Help us all see Jesus today. In his name we pray. Amen. As you open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 14, through chapter 11, verse 1, uh, this sermon is based on a uh, seminary paper I did, and um, we're going to cover a lot of ground today, but I would really encourage you to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, hopefully with some of the, the new knowledge and context that I provide today. So, 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. And by way of a little bit of background, the city of Corinth was a thriving pagan city where every, virtually every aspect of social life was centered around the pagan deities. Whether it was political matters, economic life, or cultural events, contact with pagan worship was virtually unavoidable for early Christians. And this issue is particularly evident when it came to food. Pagan temples were not only a place of idol worship. They functioned as banqueting halls. They functioned as butcher shops. So it was common to go to a birthday party or a wedding at a pagan temple. And the meat that is sacrificed there was a key source of food to the markets. And this was certainly a challenge for some of the early Christians. This food made some uncomfortable because it recalled their pagan past. So in this broader discourse, Paul deals with those in the church who are eating this sacrificed food brazenly. And in our passage, which I will read uh, very shortly, Paul admonishes the Corinthians to exercise their rights rightly. So please stand for the reading of God's word. This is a little bit of a longer passage, so please bear with me. 1 Corinthians 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 14, through chapter 11, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is, that, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That foods to offer to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that the pag- what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving of thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because for that which of that which for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We love our freedoms. In an age of self-actualization, in an age of self-promotion, it is tempting to believe that what I want matters most. That the surrounding world should conform to me. Emblematic of this attitude are the opening lyrics to the song, I'm free by the Rolling Stones. I'm free to do what I want any old time. So love me, hold me, love me, hold me. But I'm free any old time to get what I want. Now that sounds great. But if any of you interact with people, whether it's your siblings, your friends, coworkers, perhaps even a spouse, We know that insisting on our own way is not always best. Rather, doing what is for the good of our neighbor is often the better way. Now, the Corinthians were struggling with division in the church, with the dividing line between Jew and Gentile now removed. The early church was a new people, different backgrounds, learning to be one family together. And on what seems to be a very specific local issue on sacrificed meat, Paul labors for three chapters to expand their narrow conception of Christian freedom. Now, by freedom, we're talking about those areas that Scripture does not prohibit, uh, matters of wisdom, privileges, and preferences. And though the issue of sacrificed meat may not be relevant for us today, the principles that he shares And what Paul encourages the early church and the church in all ages is to recognize that our conduct bears not just on ourselves, but on so much more. 
So the big idea today is that we have to exercise our freedoms, not to serve ourselves, but to serve others unto God's glory. And I'll expound today's message with three truths. And the first is this. Our freedoms begin at the end at the end of idolatry. Our freedoms begin at the end of idolatry. Now, as mentioned earlier, Paul is dealing with some in the early church who were eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, what is interesting is that Paul doesn't take issue with that eating per se. In chapter 8, he points out that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. In verse 26 of our passage today, he quotes Psalm 4, uh, 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, just because someone offered an animal to sacrifice, God does not lose claim on that animal. God does not lose claim on his creation because an idol is nothing. So one is free to eat without worrying about spiritual tainting. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, some with this knowledge, some of the Corinthians, let's call them the knowers, they relished in this truth and then they ate freely. That was fine. But then they started to cross the line. They were eating in front of others without this knowledge. They were scandalizing weaker believers still struggling with their pagan past. And they acted without regard to their brother. They acted as if their welfare was none of their business. And we'll return to this later. But if that were not enough, according to chapter 8, they were even eating this food, reclining at table in a temple in the context of idol worship. This language should pique our attention because it's the same language that is used when Jesus reclines at table with his disciples when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And here, these knowers were reclining at table, having supper in the context of idol worship. They were puffed up with knowledge and living up their freedom in a sinful way. They justified their actions with the slogan, all things are lawful. You'll notice that in the ESV, they put quotes around this. So in our passage, Paul admonishes this contingent, and he puts this slogan back to them. All things are lawful, but there are limits. And before we get ahead of ourselves, before we talk about freedom, let's talk idolatry. Now, I don't know about you, it feels a little odd to talk about idolatry in the church. You know, we are a redeemed people. We observe the first commandment. We have no God but one, don't we? And I don't think any of us would be caught having stake in a pagan temple. But when we examine our hearts, I think we recognize that we are prone to wander. As John Calvin once noted, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. So by recalling the history of Israel, Paul warns that even God's people struggle with idolatry. The Israelites were redeemed from slavery. They were the one nation of all the nations called by the name of God. Yet, many of them fell 
despite being part of the visible covenant community. Right before our reading today in chapter 10, right before our passage, Paul prays up four Old Testament quotations and allusions to evoke Israel's idolatry and rebellion in the wilderness wanderings. The first he quotes is Exodus 32. It says, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now some of you might be thinking, what's wrong with that? It's because they did that in the context of offering to the golden calf that they fashioned. He then quotes Numbers 25, in which 23,000 fell in a single day. Why did that happen? It's because Israelite men married foreign women. Now at the outset, it's hard to know what's wrong with that. But it's because they let the foreign women lead them astray to worship foreign gods. And in the remaining quotes from Numbers 14 and 21, it shows where Israelite partook of good things. They partook of God's provision, but did so with a grumbling heart and an evil heart towards God. So by these, Paul warns the Corinthians to flee from idolatry. These unfaithful Israelites, they eat the same spiritual food. They drink the same spiritual drink as the faithful did, but they fell. So he implores the Corinthians, don't be arrogant just because you're part of the visible church community. Don't think you're so strong that you're above temptation. And in no uncertain terms, he declares, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He condemns the eating of sacrificial meat in any context of idolatry, not even a hint. And as I heard a pastor say, it's not so much the menu, but the venue that counts. And so our freedoms begin only at the end of idolatry. Now, as we consider our day, what are some liberties that we exercise wrongly? We may not sacrifice meat, but there are many things that cause us to stumble, or we let cause us to stumble. And I think a perfect example are our phones and our screens. You know, if you look at a device, it's metal, glass, and silicon. It's meant for us to be productive. But is that what we use it for? Is that how we use it? I think it's sneaky how it's easy it is for us to be addicted to our devices. And one researcher who uh, studies um, social media addiction, he has like, a crude but funny test. When you wake up in the morning, do you reach for your phone before or after you go to the bathroom? I think that's a good litmus test. Now, surely we don't doubt the usefulness of a phone, but I'm afraid for many, including myself, we use it to feed the idols of our hearts, whether it's to feed our anxieties, greed, the need to be connected, and several other bad tendencies. And whether it's in food or in drink, in our recreation, whatever it may be, we must recognize that, yes, we are united to Christ, but at the same time, we are prone to wander because of indwelling sin. 
Yes, we have been set free from the power of sin, but we are not yet a finished work. So as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, we ought not to be slack in our pursuit of holiness. We must keep our hearts with all vigilance against idolatry. And as it says in Romans 13, 14, let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So having established the idolatry-free ground of freedom, Paul now moves on to another principle, and which is this. Our freedoms serve the good of neighbor. Our freedoms serve the good of neighbor. Now, in verses 25 through 28, Paul talks about situations where it is permissible to eat. First, we can eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Second, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, whether it's at their home or an event, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So why does Paul prohibit eating in the prior situation, but allows it here? In the previous situation, again, the knowers were eating in the context of idol worship. And here, it's a neutral context. So whether it's food taken home and eaten there, or even in an unbeliever's house, wherever it is, as long as it's a neutral context, you're permitted to eat. Again, it's not so much the menu, but the venue that matters. Now, if you're eating with others, and as you slice your steak and are about to take a bite, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. Not our conscience, but his. Now, commentators raise several scenarios about this situation. There's like a book this size that I read in seminary. And I'll just say that I think the key matter here is how a Christian conducts himself in front of outsiders observing you. So even though one is dining in a lawful context, they are to abstain for the sake of conscience for three main reasons. First, they were to avoid causing a fellow believer to stumble, to not tempt them, to not put them in an awkward social position, to feel social pressure, to eat against their conscience. And in so doing, they also demonstrate the love and unity of the faith in the presence of unbelievers. Now, as a quick aside, I just want to say a, a quick note about conscience, given just the, its emphasis here. Conscience is a God-given inner sense that we have, whether something is right or wrong. Uh, I like the way John MacArthur puts it. It's like pain sensors to the body. Our conscience is like a built-in alert system that strikes when we do something that we believe is wrong. Now, our conscience isn't perfect. We shouldn't be like Pinocchio and always let our conscience be our guide. But it can be matured insofar as it is informed by Scripture. So a little nuance here, and I hope I don't lose you here. What is interesting is that even though one's conscience is misinformed, like those who struggle with sacrificed meat here, even though it's permitted, 
even if a conscience is misinformed, to act against it is still sin. Because they are knowingly doing something they believe is wrong, and their actions are not proceeding from faith. I have an illustration of some ways I've messed up in the past. So I have a friend in seminary. He's uh, interesting and quirky, but a dear brother. He believes that people should not eat meat because it is a post-fall accommodation. There is no animal death before the fall. And he wants to avoid bringing pain to God's creatures. And I'll say, I myself being a student of Scripture and uh, someone, I'll say, with a heavy frame, I believe he's wrong. Meat is a wonderful blessing from God. But I have to confess that I crossed the line when I was jabbing him. I remember one time we hosted Thanksgiving, and I said, this meal cannot be had without meat. So why don't you partake, brother? And I'll just say that many of us gave him a hard time. On his part, though he may be misinformed about the right to eat meat, it would still be sin for him to eat it because, again, his eating would be contrary to his conscience and it would not proceed from faith. On my part, though eating meat is a right, I had the sin of being a jerk, offending my brother. So when we come back to our passage, Paul admonishes believers to avoid making another stumble, even if their conscience is misinformed. That is why he calls the knowers to forego their right to eat. The second reason they were to abstain was for the sake of Christian witness to unbelievers. It's to avoid any misconceptions, any confusion about the faith. Perhaps they might think, why is this so-called Christian eating meat sacrificed to idols? Isn't that against their religion? Perhaps they saw them at the temple the other day. They didn't eat here. They didn't eat there. But why are they eating here? Why is there this inconsistency? And Paul calls the knowers to abstain so that there's, he, they avoid any hint of idolatrous association. It's not worth it to partake of this freedom. God doesn't commend eating. But there can be much damage and misconception when we choose to insist on our freedoms, violating another's conscience. And lastly, very quickly, it said we're to avoid giving occasion for others to denounce a good thing. Starting at the end of verse 29, Paul asks generally, For why is my freedom determined? Or if we go with the NASB, why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered about that for which I give thanks? And I believe what he's getting here is that by abstaining, they do not bring unnecessary shade upon themselves or the faith. In the words of a commentator, our actions should not give occasion for evil speaking on the part of people who do not understand. It is better to abstain. So to summarize these things, Christian freedom is not absolute. It is circumstantial and has limits. Christian freedom is not self-centered, but is other-oriented. It does not insist on its own way, but it seeks the good of neighbor. 
Now, on how these principles apply to us in our day, we ought to be people pleasers. Now, I say it this way to catch your attention, but there is biblical warrant. Paul says himself in verse 33, I please everyone in everything I do. But this does not mean we grovel at the feet of others so that they like us, which is ultimately a selfish act. It does not mean we compromise the gospel. You know, Paul talks here about pleasing everyone, but when it comes to the matters of the gospel in Galatians 1, he says, if I were pleasing man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If anyone, even an angel, were to preach a different gospel, let them be accursed. Let him be anathema. So to please others does not mean we compromise the gospel to be friendly to the world. But what it does mean for us is that we ought to be considerate of others in our conduct, to be willing to forego our rights, the willingness to be inconvenienced out of an act of love. Now, some considerations for some self-examination include, how do our choices and actions affect other believers? Whether it is food or drink, our hobbies, what we wear, our political preferences, how we handle our political preferences, could the way we exercise our liberties be causing others to stumble? And a second consideration is what is our posture towards those who have different views than us? I heard uh, Elder Sledge talking about this this morning, but some of us may be too quick to throw down the gauntlet and call a theological showdown. Some of us may have the reverse problem where we have silent resentment towards those with different views and we don't make them aware of how their conduct impacts us. As we consider these things, may our posture lean more and more towards one another. Instead of asserting our will and pulling others to us, may we be a people that lean in towards one another. We owe it to each other to have an open and patient dialogue, to speak the truth in love, and to build each other up as we work out our differences. And this brings me to the final point, which I'll conclude with, which is our freedoms serve God's glory. Our freedoms serve God's glory. Paul closes his discourse with this final point in verse 31. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If there was any question on which freedoms, which privileges to lay down, he leaves nothing out. Whatever we do ought to promote the glory of God to advance the gospel, and that is to be our singular focus. Now, with all the rage of uh, artificial intelligence and AI these days, I just couldn't help but draw this analogy. An AI is created for a specific function, for a specific goal. I'm sure you've seen AIs recently created to win in Jeopardy or win in chess. But these programs train themselves toward the function that they're created for. They try, they fail, they learn, and get better just a little bit, a million times a trillion times. 
And their singular focus is to press on just a little bit, little bit more to fulfill the goal that they were created for. And likewise, let us be a people that our singular focus is to give God glory and advance his gospel. You know, Paul points us to his example of what that looks like. Just in chapter 10, he had the right to be financially supported by the churches. You shall not muzzle an ox. But he laid down that right so that he wouldn't burden the churches. There were other people peddling the gospel for selfish gain, but he proclaimed the gospel free of charge. He had the right to marry and have children, but he laid down those rights so that he could devote his life towards the gospel. And it's humbling, especially just in our age of comfort, what he was willing to lay down for the sake of the Lord. And we can ask, what drove him to this? What motivated him to this? And what motivated him is because he's imitating the Lord who gave up so much more for him, for you, and for me. As it says in Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even unto death on a cross. You know, we sing last week that he left the gaze of angels, came to seek and save the lost, and he exchanged the joy of heaven to seek the anguish of the cross. You see, such was the love of our Savior for us that he laid down his rights so that we may have the right to become children of God. So brothers and sisters, as we go forth from here, let the Lord's love motivate us to love one another. Let us not insist on our own way, but let us insist on a more excellent way of loving our neighbors, of serving our neighbors in our freedom and promoting the glory of God in all that we do. Amen? Let us bow our heads. Oh Lord, thank you for your word today, which broadens our often narrow perspectives. Would your spirit help us along as we die to self and live more and more for your glory? May we be a people united, loving one another because you first loved us, and let the world then look upon us and give glory to our Lord Jesus. All this we pray in his name. Amen.